Welcome to Lost Anchorage, where Crude investigates the mechanisms of crime and violence in Anchorage, Alaska. My name is Cody Liska, and I'll be your host. Through research and interviews with professionals, law enforcement, and those affected by crime, I hope to build a better understanding of whether or not Anchorage is in fact becoming more dangerous. By the end of this series, I hope to create a portrait of crime in our city, for better or for worse. My name is Laura Norton Cruz, and I am from Anchorage, grew up here, and live here, but my work is statewide at the Alaska Children's Trust. I direct an initiative called the Alaska Resilience Initiative, and it's focused on reducing child maltreatment, which is abuse and neglect, and trauma, and the way that trauma is passed from generation to generation, and looking at changing the systems that, that help contribute to trauma. So we were trying to reduce trauma for children and build resilience in healthy communities. So today I want to talk to you about adverse childhood experiences, also known as ACEs, and how it affects children and how it affects them later in life. So for someone who might not have a frame of reference for ACEs, what is it and how is it used? Sure. So the term ACEs comes from a study that was done in the 1990s. It stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. And what they did in that study with uh, 17,000 patients is they were trying to figure out if adult disease actually had an origin in childhood. And so they asked these patients about 10 different adversities that happened to them when they were children. So were they physically or sexually or emotionally abused? Were they emotionally or physically neglected? And then they asked about in their household growing up, was a household member incarcerated or suffer from mental illness or substance abuse disorders was someone um, was there domestic violence in the household and was there parental separation or divorce so those 10 things that they asked about were what were included in this original adverse childhood experiences study or aces study um, and what they found is that though as people had experienced more of those aces growing up the risk of health problems increased so the higher their ACE score, which is a number of those different adversities they experienced, the higher the risk of pretty much every uh, behavioral health problem and physical health problem you can think of. We know that there are other adversities that also affect people and can contribute to health problems as well. But, but the ACEs comes from that, that original study. What have you learned about parents of these children? You know, so it's a good question because... If you just talk about the ACE study, one of the conclusions that people can make is, oh, those parents messed up those children. And the, the problem with that way of thinking is that ACEs don't occur in a vacuum, right? Parents don't just decide they're going to be, you know, abusive and neglectful and, and have domestic violence and have all these problems, right? It's usually intergenerational, multigenerational. It goes back into history. Where did this come from, right? A parent may arrive into adulthood without all of the skills and resources that they need to to know how to raise a child um, or keep that child safe. Or they might be doing the absolute best they can, but be in circumstances that are really hard, right, that make them vulnerable to abuse or make them vulnerable to, to neglect. Before the podcast, before we started, you'd mentioned that 
a question you frequently get is what's wrong with Alaska natives? And, and a lot of what you do is you kind of dispel that, that kind of negative connotation. Yeah. Yeah. I unfortunately do get asked that question a lot and, um, and have for many years. And there's a few ways of answering it because I think it speaks both to that. There's not great information. Um, I think there's a, there's a misunderstanding that, Alaska Native people are, you know, have all these problems that that other people don't have or that white people don't have the same problems. And if you look at data on things like binge drinking and heavy drinking and alcoholism, actually, the the burden is white people have have the most problems with that. So part of it is understanding that the the data, really, that um, adverse childhood experiences, the thing I work on, um, is experienced by all people of all races, of all socioeconomic groups. and the original ACE study was done in a population that uh, was considered low risk at the time because they're you know, mostly middle class and had private insurance and were largely white. And they had a lot of adversity in their childhood. So I think that's really helpful to understand that this is a burden shared across the population. So is crime, right? That's something that that people of all races and genders and and socioeconomic classes experience. Um, another thing that's important for answering that question, though, is that Anywhere in the world, when you have colonization, the way that it happened in Alaska, um, so whether we're talking about New Zealand, Australia, right, anywhere where you where you kill people, right, physically with violence and with disease, mm-hmm. anywhere where you take children away from their parents and put them in boarding school and where there's systemic abuse, right, where, where children are not allowed to speak their language and practice their ways, where they're physically abused and sexually abused, anywhere where you send known pedophile priests into villages, right, it affects people, right? Anywhere in the world, that is a human reaction. It will affect people for generations. Because if you are not parented because you were taken away from your parents, how do, you, how do you know how to parent, right? And so Alaska Native people have been incredibly resilient in the face of trauma, have done so much to build back up after that kind of trauma, to transform, to, to rebuild their languages, to rebuild their ways, to find all the cultural strength and resilience practices that they have had for 10,000 years and bring them back onto the table and, so, and say, wait, our culture is medicine and we have ways of healing and we have ways of, of building relationships of reciprocity and ways of taking care of each other. Let's practice those, right? Even though they were, they were taken away from us, we still have them. Um, and so, you know, the, all of that is, is what I contribute back to the conversation, that historical trauma that's ongoing affects people and can contribute to more problems, and also that there's so much strength in culture and so many beautiful ways of being in rural Alaska and among Alaska Native people. And we're lucky in the Resilience Initiative to have really strong Alaska Native leadership to, to really bring that into the conversation and share those strength and resilience practices and also address the systemic problems that contribute, because there's ongoing racism that, that contributes to the stress that Alaska Native children mm-hmm. experience, for example. And what do you think contributes to um, the continuing negative images of, of Alaska Natives? Um, you know, racism right, is, is, is a big part of it, that that colors what stories we hear and which stories we don't hear, um, who gets a voice on the media, who gets, um, whose history is taught in the classroom and how it's taught, right? We're still not taught an accurate history of Alaska. Um, I certainly wasn't in my schooling. There's a lot that contributes to it. Um, also that there are ongoing problems that, that create inequities, right? That 
Alaska Native people don't have all of the same kind of policy level uh, resources, um, especially folks in rural areas, right? So if you're in a village where you only have a village public safety officer or a tribal po uh, police officer, like a VPSO or a TPO, right, you're not getting the same kind of law enforcement that, sure. that a village that's served by troopers, or even if you are served by troopers, but they can't get there because it's a huge region and, and there aren't enough troopers, right? There, I mean, there's there are these systemic inequities. And the VPSO program is, is um, now facing uh, potential cuts to their already, you know, they're already not getting the same level of service. How does the average person educate themselves or be educated about these inequities? Hmm. Um, well, they're, okay, that's a good question. Uh, you can follow folks on social media. I mean, that's one of the ways I learn a lot. Um, on a larger national level, I follow a lot of uh, thinkers and activists and writers who are people of color who teach me a lot. But um, here in Alaska, following First Alaskans Institute, following Native People's Action on Facebook or on Twitter, um, going to events, you know, going to the Alaska Native Heritage Center for events as well as just to learn, um, going to Koyana Night at AFN every year or Indigenize It, which is a, you know, kind of open mic culture and art space, um, reading. Uh, so we have on our website, which is akresilience.org, we have a, a link to different readings and videos and other things to learn about uh, historical trauma and Alaska Native cultural strength and resilience practices. First Alaskans Institute has a bunch of that on their website as well, as does the Alaska Native Heritage Center. The museum sometimes has some really good um, exhibits. What I'm getting from what you're saying is that we need to experience or understand the culture a little better. I think it's easy for us, even though Anchorage is this incredibly diverse city, um, and we're proud of that and we love that, people don't always actually have friends or, or spend time socially with people who are different than them. And that's a really important thing to do, right? To, to humanize, to just know the individual stories and histories of, of people who are different than yourself. I guess getting back to one of my last questions, which was, you know, what have you learned about parents of these children? And you were kind of alluding to the fact that, you know, the abuse is uh, systemic. So does that mean it, that it's learned, it's a learned trait from their parents and then their parents' parents? And it, so it just continues. Yeah, I mean, learned and also experienced in the body. Um, so, I mean, I'll just t tell a personal story because it's not just those parents, right? It's my parents. My parents have very high ACE scores. Um, and I imagine that my dad's mom, um, you know, my dad grew up in poverty. He, uh, he experienced a lot of abuse and neglect and exposure to domestic violence. He had multiple dads. Um, his mom definitely had a lot of adversity in her, in her childhood. I don't really know his dad's. Um, but they probably did, I, you know, they, there was a lot that was passed on from generation to generation. And I don't know my own family history well enough to know where it started or why. Um, but I think they were doing the best they could with, with kind of what they had been raised with and didn't have a whole lot of resources to heal from what they'd been raised with. And that's what my dad did differently is he found the resources to, 
to address the way he had been raised that he didn't want to raise his own kids that way. And he did so much better, right? And so did my mom. They found resources. They got help for themselves so that they didn't have to raise us the same way they were raised. Um, but the trauma wasn't just encoded, you know, across these generations in, their, in behavior. It was. It, there was learned behavior that was passed on, but also in, in your body, right? Like it affects the way your brain develops. It affects the way your body reacts to stress. It affects the way your body deals with, with stress hormones. And so is genetically inherited? Well, there are um, epigenetic adaptations that your body can make to stress. So, so for example, when um, I'm just going to give an animal example, because this is an easy way to explain this. Uh, when a zebra mom is pregnant with a little zebra baby, and there are a lot of hyenas at the watering hole that particular year, she is sending all these stress hormones um, through the placenta to her little developing zebra fetus. And that zebra that's developing is is being prepared for a dangerous world full of hyenas, right? She, the mom, through her hormones, is doing what she can to protect that developing baby. And so that baby's born like ready to run, ready to respond to those hyenas and be safe in a dangerous world. And if it were a really chill year without a lot of hyenas, that, that baby would get different stress hormones. And epigenetically, so epi just means upon, so the, the adaptations upon the genes would would be different. Your genes can turn on or turn off. And, and one of the epigenetic adaptations that we make because of trauma is to turn on or off um, genes that relate to your, your stress response. But also there's genes that relate to physical and psychiatric disease um, that turn on or off because of those stress responses. And some of those can be inherited, can be passed on. So I imagine I have some of my parents' epigenetic adaptations to trauma in my genes. Even though my parents raised me without ACEs, I think some of it's probably encoded in my genes and might be. <laughs> I think it probably is in all of us. I think that idea of epigenetics or epigenetics, mm -hmm. is, is that a new um, idea or has it been around for a while? Sort of. I mean, the, it was first discovered in, oh man, I don't remember the exact year, but I think the 30s um, because it was looking at why is it that the same DNA can become a skin cell or a liver cell or, you know, all these different kinds of cells, right? Even though it's the same DNA and that's because of epigenetic coding that says do this or do that to the, to the genes. But what, what they discovered starting in the 90s, they were doing experiments on rats. Um, it's actually really interesting. Do you want me to tell you about the rat pup Absolutely, experiment? Yeah. Um, so they were looking at rat a good rat mom um, licks and grooms her pups a lot. Um, that's what good rat mothering looks like. And some rat mothers were not doing that. And they found that these um, rat pups that were not licked and groomed, when they had their own babies, they didn't lick and groom their babies either. Um, they were, ne you know, neglectful rat mothers. But the ones who were licked and groomed then became really good mothers themselves. And so it's, they thought, oh, well, maybe there's a gene for good rat mothering. So what they did to test that is they switched the rat pups at birth. So the ones who were born to the not good rat moms were given to the really good rat moms in this optimal foster care environment, and they were licked and groomed a lot. And those rat pups became really good rat moms. And the ones who were born to the really good rat moms were given to the not so good moms, and they became not good rat moms. And so what they found is that it's the way that they were treated in their infancy, in their little rat infancy, changed their genetic, the way their gene behaved, and this, this gene-related distress. And so 
that's really important, right? And and they've since then actually looked at humans too. So humans who were uh, women who were pregnant during um, 9-11 or during the Rwandan genocide, certain their the stress of those experiences while they were pregnant um, led to certain that gene change in the it's called the glucocorticoid receptor, um, the gene that affects that the stress response in their babies. And the good thing, right, though, is that you can change some of these epigenetic adaptations. You can heal from them. So it's not a um, it's not a sentence. You can rise above it. Yeah, I mean, but the earlier the better, right? So there was a study with like eighty six um, children who had substantiated child maltreatment, which means like their child maltreatment had been investigated and found to, you know, that they felt like it really did happen. And then children who who were similar in other aspects, but did not have any maltreatment. And what they found is that there were changes in, in almost 3,000 different genes. So, I mean, it can profoundly affect a kid's body, a kid's brain. Um, and so the earlier that you can understand the stresses happening in that child's life or in that family's life and get the family the support they need and get the child the support they need, the better, right? The, the more healing you can do. And how much does this have to do with uh, brain plasticity? Yeah, so the, that concept that the neuroplasticity or that the brain is plastic, it's moldable, it's changeable, is really important. Um, the most sensitive time for brain development is the first three years of a child's life. 80% mm -hmm. of their brain is developed already. And in the first five years, it's 85% of the brain. So that's a very, very important time for affecting a child's life, of course, prenatally as well. Um, but our brains can always change. Right. We never we never can give up on people. Um, our brains can always change. And it's always important to have really good environments to support people. So we've, we've talked about how certain feelings of a mother, certain uh, kind of socioeconomic or even atmosphere can can affect the, the fetus. And then uh, later on the, the child. How does that all affect whether or not the person or the child will be drawn to criminality. Um, your question actually reminded me of something. I, I should be clear to say I was, you know, talking about zebra moms and rat moms because, you know, rat fatherhood and zebra fatherhood doesn't look quite the same way that uh, human fatherhood does. But you know, dads play a huge role in this too. Yeah. And a lot of the stress that um, pregnant women go through is related to domestic violence, relationship violence, and so it's super important that we. Um, think about the role that men have in shaping this stressful environments in utero um, in early childhood. Just, I yeah. just realized I was I was remiss in not saying that. Uh, and, and maybe let's uh, before we get into to the question I just asked, maybe let's let's talk about that a little bit. So, um, what role does a, a a man or a male play in in that whole equation? Yeah, I mean the the environment of stress and health and nutrition and all that in utero is so important for shaping babies, right? And that's affected by the relationships that the mom has um, of all kinds, right? Regardless of who she's in a relationship with, but a lot of those relationships are with men. And um, so if she's in a relationship that's ab abusive, that has a direct effect of increasing the stress hormones that are affecting baby's development and also an indirect effect because women who are in abusive relationships are eight times more likely to drink while pregnant, often because substance abuse is part of the abuse in many cases. Um, and so if we and if we want to think about optimal, you know, baby development, like we definitely don't want alcohol involved, and the risk of that is so much higher in abuse. And so 
making sure that women are in safe relationships and preventing men from committing domestic violence would be a huge way of reducing like the, the negative effects on babies um, to, to do prevention with, with boys and young men um, who commit most of the domestic and sexual violence. Are there any, are there any programs or are there any ways of, of teaching, educating young boys? Yeah. Yeah. And they're really effective ones. I actually recently saw a chart on return on investment. So like the, the amount of dollars you get back for every dollar invested um, in different things that improve society. And the highest return on investment was for teen. Um, in general, it's for prenatal and early childhood. But when you do healthy relationships education and violence prevention education with teenagers, there's a very high return on investment if it's an effective program. Um, so there's there's a CDC program um, for teaching about teen dating violence. There's a program called Fourth R that's taught in a lot of Alaska schools and that um, you can get training and materials on. There's We actually developed... And that one is evidence-based and very effective at reducing uh, boys committing violence. There's a there's also these safety cards that uh, I d- helped um, develop back when I was at the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. We went around the state and worked with teenagers um, to get the language right and get the messages right called Getting Together. And you can order those on iknowmind.org. And that's based on an evidence-based best practice that also reduces violence. So okay. there are a lot of really good resources. And um, you can check out... There's also Coaching Boys into Men, which is a you know program for coaches. You can get a lot of these from andvsa.org, which is the Alaska Network on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. Um, you can get training. Okay. Yeah. So getting back to our uh, our question that <laughs> that uh, we kind of <laughs> sorry. No, 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 no. This is I, I had questions in between, and so uh, what it was was how does all of this lead to criminality? So, I mean, most people who experience adverse childhood experiences don't commit crime. So I don't want to stigmatize like a lot of most of us, right? The majority of Alaskans have experienced stasis and are not committing crimes um, and are, you know, doing what they can to be healthy. But many people who experience stasis are struggling with physical health problems, with mental health problems and are not committing crime. However, there is there does appear to be a link. Right. And in in saying that, it's not making, you know, some people might say, oh, well, that's making excuses. It's not making excuses, but it is looking at if we want to reduce crime, what do we need to do? Right. We need to go upstream and figure out um, what could we do in childhood to prevent that trauma in the first place and to help people heal. So what we know from the data and there's not a ton of data on ACEs and crime, but from the original ACE study, they found that for people with high ACE scores, um, there is an increased risk of both perpetrating domestic violence and of um, being the victim of domestic violence. So that was one relationship they found. I looked at some other studies recently, um, and there was one that found that ACEs did increase the risk of committing violent crime, but that there was a complex gene-environment interaction. So not everyone who had ACEs, you know, was it this increased risk. It was like sort of this like epigenetics, right? This this nature and nurture interaction that was happening. And so does that mean that there's just a lot of variables involved or? Yeah. Okay. And uh, But it also means we can prevent it, right? We can prevent it if we, if we support families early on, you know, preconception, prenatally, infancy, um, 
families who are at risk so that it, it supports the caregivers to do the best caregiving they can give and, and give the babies a good, you know, good start at life and prevent ACEs in the first place, but also if we can help children who have been exposed to ACEs so that, because one of the things that happens that can increase this risk of crime, I think, is, is this cycle we have where kids experience ACEs, they're really stressed out, it changes their brain, it changes their bodies, they, they feel like they're always in danger and they're always in fight and flight mode. And so they go to school and they, you know, overreact to something or they run out of the classroom and then they get in trouble for it and they get sent home, right? Or they get suspended or they get expelled. And it just increases this. It's like trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. The mm-hmm. sense that, you know, I'm not, I'm not good. I'm not safe at school. I'm not safe at home. I don't belong here. Right. And, and so their kids who are punished for their trauma are more likely to drop out of school. And that makes it harder to earn an income, right? It it contributes to to this, um, you know, the school to prison pipeline. If you have a real punitive, you know, punishment based approach to kids um, in school, then it increases that school to prison pipeline. And we know also that even when there's a lot of data showing that when white kids and kids of color do the same behaviors in school, the kids of color are more likely to be punished for it, and more likely, really? mm-hmm. Yep. Um, In, really do you have any examples? Yeah. So, I mean, there were studies, um, there have been a lot of studies done nationally on this where researchers actually observed in the classrooms and they saw kids doing the same exact misbehaviors, like talking back to the teachers. And the, they were looking at black, Latino, and American Indian kids, and they were more likely to be suspended or expelled than the white kids for the same misbehaviors. There's also research looking at, uh, Georgetown University looked at adult perceptions of black girls versus white girls and they just they would say oh you know she's doing that because she's a child and she's learning she's developing if it were the white girl but they were less likely to do that for the black girl so they're more likely to ascribe adult motives for behavior and see black girls as less innocent even though they were doing the exact same childlike things um wow that's interesting yeah and with boys um people add an average of four to five years onto the age of a black boy so they'll see a 12-year-old white boy and say he's 12. They'll see a 12-year-old black boy and say he's 15 or he's 16 or he's okay. 17, right, and treat him differently because of that. So there's lots of research, like, showing that that happens, and it and it comes out, right? It comes out in who's punished in schools for the same. And is that because of uh, just systemic racism? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people don't know. Uh, you know, I was a teacher, right? I was a third grade teacher and I love teachers and I have so much respect for teachers. So I'm not trying to, you know, put this all on teachers. Um, but in schools and in other systems, uh, we, we have implicit bias. We have bias that we don't even know about. Um, and that affects our thinking in a, you know, second to second basis. Right. I mean, Mm. given these disparities, there has to be, right. Um, because they keep showing up and they keep showing up. You know, I think that uh, personal experience probably adds to it. So if you see, if you're a uh, white teacher, and I was a substitute teacher for a long time, so I can, I guess, I can empathize with, you know, kind of what, what we're getting at here is, is uh, if you see a white boy acting up, maybe in your mind, you're like, oh, that's like my little brother or something like that, mm-hmm. you know? So you can kind of, and you're, you're unconsciously doing you it. You relate to them. Exactly. Yeah, they look and, like you. Exactly. Which is, uh, like you were saying, it's, you know, not bad mouthing teachers, 
but it's something that's just unconsciously done. Yeah, the, the point is that this needs to be part of our training. Mm-hmm. This needs to be part of our education. It was luckily part of my education. And so when I was a white teacher, you know, I I had this in my mind. Like, I know that kids of color are more likely to be punished. So I'm going to explicitly acknowledge that, that I, I have my own implicit bias and 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 go against it, right? mm-hmm. counteract it, and really see my children, my, my students for all their humanity. And, you know, and also that meant seeing trauma, right? Seeing the way that trauma was shaping their behavior. Like, I didn't even know about this science, but I kind of figured it out. Um, and I was raised by a nurse. My mom's a nurse. And so she sort of knew this uh, inherently growing up and mm-hmm. raised me. So when I had seven really violent boys my first year of teaching, you know, I was like, huh, I wonder what's going on in these kids' life. Like, I didn't think, oh, these kids are just being bad. Mm -hmm. Like, I know that kids don't just choose to be bad. I knew that they were stressed out. And I tried to figure out what was going on in their life and how I could help them. How much of of all of this is the burden of the parent? You know, some parents may say that, you know, my child's just a bad seed. Yeah, children aren't bad seeds. I mean, there's just no such thing, right? Children are... They're born with their genes. They're born with their personalities. I mean, that is part of it is that your kid does have their own personality. Um, but your job as a parent, or I'll use myself, my job as a parent, right, is to is to understand my kids' personalities and to provide the best environment I can, right, to respond to them, to see them as a human being, to treat them as a human being, and to teach them and guide them um, so that we, we can't blame children, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that said, parents are also like were once children and were raised. Um, and so parents are responsible for seeing their children and doing the best they can for them. Um, but we as a society need to support parents to be able to do that, to know how to do that, um, to heal from the trauma they may have experienced as children, to have the resources and supports and social connections that they need. Right. Because we know that if parents have good social supports and and are able to get things that they need like food or you know shelter when they need them that reduces child maltreatment and then when parents know about child development so part of it is that parents may say well this kid is a bad seed because they don't know what a normal 2-year-old brain has it you know 2-year-olds are doing things they're developing parts of their brain they're developing uh, ways of learning about the world where they have to test boundaries. Um, if you understand that that's a normal part of development, you're going to read a two-year-old's behavior very differently than if you don't understand that and you think the child is trying to manipulate you, mm-hmm. right? Terrible twos. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but they're not terrible. They're just learning about the world. I have a two-year-old right yeah. now, um, and he's learning about the world and figuring out where the boundaries are and how to navigate it, and it's my job to help him learn those things with loving consistency and firmness. You being cognizant of the fact that he's just learning and this is his process, you know, as, as a child, how do you react to certain, you know, quote, unquote, you know, terrible to behavior? I mean, I wish I reacted perfectly all the time, right? It helps to know, you know, what, what is developmentally normal for him and, and what is a helpful reaction. So having that knowledge is really helpful for me. It doesn't mean that I never have emotional reactions to it. It's still hard when he hits his sister. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I still get angry, but I know that it's not my place to, to put that anger all over him, right? That that's not going to help him develop, that it's my job to teach him to say, like, no hitting, um, 
and to help him learn appropriate behaviors, to teach him how to be gentle and to show him and model for him and teach him how to self-regulate. So that's a, that's a term. Self-regulation um, is when you know that you can calm yourself down, when you can, uh, when you're in fight or flight or freeze response, like you're prepped for something really dangerous, how to calm yourself down and get yourself back down where your brain can think and where your body can relax and you can make better decisions. So it's my job as a parent to regulate myself so that I can co-regulate with my kid so I can help him regulate, right? So I need to take a deep breath and hold him and breathe with him so that he can breathe and get back down into a good state of mind. So you talk about uh, breathing with him and helping him get back to a certain state of mind. Are there any other techniques that a parent can use to to soothe their kid? Mm-hmm. I mean, and it starts in infancy, right? Uh, th- this starts at the very beginning. Um, your infant, you know, should be on your skin a lot. You're you're co-regulating with them from a temperature and heartbeat and breathing perspectives. You're doing this really early on when a kid gets stressed out and you're meeting their needs right away so that they learn that stress is manageable. Um, So it starts before they even have like misbehaviors, right? Because they're just being a baby, like looking for food. By responding to their needs, you're teaching them that stress is manageable. And then when they start having all these big feelings that they have when they're one years old and throwing tantrums, you're helping them be safe through that process. Um, So breathing, teaching them to breathe, breathing with them. I sing a lot to my kids because it helps calm them down and it calms me down. And that's the most important thing because they really feed off of our energy. Mm -hmm. Um, We can also, especially as they get older, teach them to identify their feelings. So teaching them emotional literacy, right, to be able to identify that they're feeling sad or mad or happy, um, name their feelings. You can talk about it. You can show them, read them lots of books and and show them pictures of people's faces and ask how they think that person's feeling. Um, to be able to talk about their feelings really helps. If you can identify, you can change your feeling. It kind of sounds like teaching more self-awareness mm-hmm. helps people avoid kind of negative things later in life. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, even if a kid is growing up in a really stressful experience at home, if they're learning those social emotional skills at school, they do better. Um, So schools need to be teaching these as well. And luckily, a lot of schools are. Anchorage School District does a lot of social emotional learning. For example, in my kid's preschool classroom, they have um, these feelings buddies from Conscious Discipline. And then go in the little peace corner in the corner of the preschool classroom when they're feeling angry and grab the little soft feelings buddy with the face of the emotion that they're experiencing. And they have a whole song about every single emotion and they can hug that feelings buddy. Mm -hmm. It's a way of you can't make bad feelings go away by just saying you shouldn't have them. You have to acknowledge that you have them and accept them. And only through that can you can you sort of let them pass through you. Um, and calm down. And so when we teach children how to do that, how to say, oh, yeah, like, I am mad. It's okay to be mad. Let me do something with that rather than hitting my friend, right? How would you respond to somebody who says that's all just a bunch of touchy-feely crap? Um, Yeah, and people have said that and do think that. uh, It works. I mean, it's effective. If you do that, Kids get in fights left less often. They have more time, instructional time in the classroom. Um, they have fewer, they have less disease in adult life. I mean, it just is effective. Um, 
when you look at the facts, yeah. when you look at the outcomes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, when you look at the outcomes. And, you know, anecdotally is when I was teaching third grade, um, I wish I had had all this science to back it up, but I did have some instincts around this. And I knew that if I taught my kids how to identify their emotions and do problem solving and conflict resolution, if if I had them practice it over and over and over again um, so that they felt really comfortable doing it, that it would reduce fights and, you know, playground problems. And it did. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it was effective. Um, we did uh, yoga in the classroom, actually. Um, that was what I knew at the time to teach them. Um, we would do deep breathing and we would do yoga as a way of, you know, when the energy was just getting out of hand. And once I had my kids were lining up and uh, Misael cut in front of Cristal and she wanted, she was about to like rear her hand back and punch him. And instead she did a little like vinyasa yoga sequence. And then she was like, Miss <laughs> Norton Cruz, I didn't hit him. I did yoga instead. That's great. Yeah. I mean, so it, it works. You know, and if and if yoga seems touchy feely or whatever, one thing I'd like to share is that the deep breathing techniques used in yoga are the exact same deep breathing techniques used by strategic or by uh, by special forces military folks. It's called tactical breathing, and it's exact same breathing. Right when you're trying to steady your gun to take a shot in a high stress environment, you're still doing you know inhale to the count of four, hold to the count of four, exhale to the count of four, hold to the count of four. It's the same breathing, right? Because it helps regulate the nervous system. And they've done functional MRIs and looked at people's brains and nervous systems while doing it. And it works, you know, it relaxes the vagus nerve. It changes your brain patterns. To kind of get back to ACEs, what kinds of experiences, traumatic or otherwise, lead to violent or criminal activity later in life? I know that you said that a high ACEs score or an ACEs score doesn't altogether denote an eventual prison sentence. But when we look at ones that do, what kind of experiences are those? Sure. Um, yeah, so most people with high ACEs, high scores don't commit crimes, but there is a relationship. The, some of the data I've looked at, I shared a little bit, right, the increase in domestic violence perpetration, inability. There's uh, some data I saw recently that found that um, – as people's ACE score went up, they reported that it was harder for them to control their anger and that they perceived experiencing a lot more stress. And then they also had then a higher risk of perpetrating domestic violence. Um, there's also some data showing that of people who are convicted of violent crimes, a very large percentage of them, the vast, vast majority, have high ACE scores. So again, that doesn't mean that most people with high ACE scores are going to commit crimes, but of people who commit violent crimes, and particularly sexual violence, a very large percentage of them have high ACE scores. And what I suspect, I mean, I think we have to be cautious about that data, but what I suspect it means is that kids who had a lot of ACE scores weren't getting the help they needed in schools, in healthcare, in, you know, in the community, right? Because it doesn't have to lead to violence, but if they're not getting the support they need, you know, it may mean that it altered the decision-making parts of their brain. We know that a lot of overwhelming stress can change the parts of your brain that have to do with um, your reward, your pleasure and reward system, and the parts of your brain that have to do with self-control and, and impulsivity and reactivity. You also um, may really need attention, and one way to get attention early on in childhood is to be aggressive because it it gets a response. And so if you learn to get, um, you know, attention that way, then it might 
continue. Also, kids who, especially the kids who've been sexually abused or um, in many other ways have been abused, they've had control taken away from them. And so they are often trying to look for ways to have control, you know, because it's scary to have your control taken away from you. And so aggression can be one way. And if that's reinforced rather than, you know, learning those self-regulation techniques or rather than being given control in a healthy way, like being the line leader or leading a game at recess. So we need to, we need to see those behaviors early on in children and find healthy ways for them to, you know, to, to gain a sense of control, to get attention, to get affirmation of what they're good at, um, to find purpose and meaning and belonging rather than just being kicked out and excluded. Can you give me any examples of childhood adverse experience in Alaska? We've talked a lot about this stuff kind of in in abstract. If we can be a little bit more specific and say like this is kind of the trauma that we're talking about. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've... I feel so honored to have friends who and, and to know people who have shared their stories really publicly and say this is so. Um, for example, our uh, former commissioner um, Valerie Davidson, the the commissioner of health and social services in the last administration, is an incredible woman, like a, an attorney, a lifelong advocate for healthcare and for people's rights, and she shares that she has a very high score, I think nine, and she talked about it at AFN last year. You know, and she's she's doing incredible things, but she knows it's affected her, right? And and it inspires her to, you know, to to prevent children from having to experience what she experienced and to build up systems that don't contribute to that trauma. Um, I have a number of friends as well who have a scores of nine, a scores of ten, who grew up being sexually abused, who grew up um, in homes where their parents were suffering from alcoholism, where their parents had also suffered from alcoholism. So um, there's a woman in Kotzebue named Carmen uh, Schaefer-Monogold, and she is uh, so wonderful and, and was willing to let me videotape her sharing her story. And so I put it on our YouTube channel, AK, well, if you go to YouTube and type in Alaska Resilience Initiative, you'll find our YouTube channel and her video. Um, and she was sharing that, uh, you know, seven years ago, she's middle-aged, and her body just began falling apart. And she couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. She was, you know, in chronic pain, had all these these problems, and they did tests, and they couldn't find a, a physical cause for all the problems she was having. And then she picked up a book about adverse childhood experiences and, and read it and was just blown away, like, oh, I'm not crazy. Like, there's a reason for this, right? There's a reason for my pain. There's a reason for my immune system issues. There's a reason for my anxiety and my depression, you know, I'm not just making it up. It's because of all the things that happened to me in childhood. And she has an ACE score of 10, um, right? She Out of how many? 10. 10, yeah, 10 out of 10. Yeah. Right. And there, of course, there's other ACEs other than the one studied in that study. But but of the scale of 10, she's a 10 out of 10. And she shared that, you know, when in growing up in Kotzebue, her dad used to get a babysitter for her and her siblings and then go to the bars and drink. But when they closed the bars, um, the bar became her house, right? When, when Kotzebue stopped having bars... People came and drank at her house, and so there were people drunk and people abusing her at her house. And she grew up with that, and she did her best. I mean, she was managing an airline. She was doing all sorts of things before her body began falling apart. And she has to spend kind of all her time focused on healing now, but she's focused not only on her own healing but her community's healing. 
you know, and she knew that she had to raise her children differently, and she did. She she knew that there was there was a lot of silence around sexual abuse when she was growing up, and she said, my kids are not going to be silent, right? They're going to know that if they hear about anything happening, if anything happens to them or their friends, you know, they can talk about it. I'll believe them. I'll help them. We can't be silent about it anymore. She's really changing her family, her community, um, and speaking up about the you know, that nothing, it should not have to happen to other people what happened to her, what has happened for generations because of colonization in her, in her region. Um, so, yeah, I definitely recommend listening to Carmen in her own words. So looking at the past, you said that there was a, a difficulty in um, being honest about the sexual abuse that was happening in Kotzebue. Mm-hmm. Do you think that not just looking at Kotzebue, but, you know, Alaska as a whole, do you think we're better off now than we were in the past? Yeah. I mean, in Alaska as a whole, the United States as a whole. Um, I don't know if you've seen that film, the, oh, shoot, what is it called? Um, Spotlight, the one about the Boston Globe investigations. I watch it at least once a month. Okay. I do. It's one of my all-time yeah. favorite movies. Yeah. yeah. So that that film, I think, is a really good example of the ways in which it's it's taken advocates, it's taken really brave people to break the silence about child abuse, whether we're talking about clergy abuse or, you know, just family member abuse or in a, any other system. Um, but it has taken people actively fighting and speaking out to change that culture. And we are talking about it more than we used to. Absolutely. And we're, we're normalizing talking about it. And then that helps future generations understand that this shouldn't be hidden. Yeah. So I think we're getting better about talking about child sexual abuse, child abuse, adverse childhood experiences. In fact, the ACE study really has helped destigmatize it because it's so universal. Because I think when, when, when we used to talk about problems with behavioral health, it was stigmatized in part because people thought it was a small percentage of people who experienced this. And when and when you look at the ACE study, most people have ACEs. And so it, it makes it more okay to talk about. Because we're all in the same boat. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and we all, even if we don't have, you know, one of those 10 ACEs, we may have other things that have affected us. And we definitely love people with high ACE scores. And so it it makes it a little easier for us all to talk about. And then I also think there's good things happening culturally to to talk more about, to destigmatize talking about uh, mental health and therapy. The the recovery movement is really you know people, uh, you know famous people talking about being in recovery. Eminem, you know, here in Alaska, like Representative Sponholes and um, Revac, right, are both talking about being sober and why they stopped drinking. So those kind of things help. And then, Jay, you know, people like Jay-Z talking about the importance of going to therapy and how we should have therapists in schools. I think we're we're saying as a society more and more often, you know, that we, we need to be healthy and we need to take charge of this and we have to talk about it. You know what's interesting? Um, you brought up celebrities mm-hmm. and, and people of note kind of coming out and saying, like, I have these uh, these hurdles that I need to overcome. But what's always been kind of weird to me is that we need we need a celebrity or someone like that to tell us what we already feel in order for us to be comfortable with how we feel. Yeah. I mean, it. they can do important things for shaping the ability to talk about. You know, I'm really grateful to 
all the people who contributed to the to the Me Too movement, for example, mm-hmm. all of us who have survived sexual violence, sexual harassment, to have a space to talk about it. And celebrities did help with that, you know, mostly and grateful to Tarana Burke for starting it, you know, and she's, you know, a youth advocate like me. Um, but celebrities really helped publicize that. That's true. And, and, and they legitimize it, I think, is probably probably really important to think about. Like if we look at uh, the Me Too movement, and then we look at someone like Michael Jackson, and the fact that you know he was he was kind of uh, he he was in the spotlight for sexual abuse of children, and if that were to happen during the Me Too movement, I think he might have been taken down. Yeah, it's a different time. I mean, it's we're finally talking about things that need to happen. You know, the surviving R. Kelly, you know, documentary is people talking about something that needs needed to be talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it needed the Me Too movement. Yeah. And I and I so appreciate people like John Legend, you know, who have who have never wavered in a, their ability to talk about this. You know, and they're still pretty rare, you know. You know, um, you brought up Spotlight, and I know that in that movie they say that this story needed spotlight. And mm-hmm. so you have these you have these moments and you have these these things that are happening, but you need certain institutions or movements to help kind of catapult them to, you know, the spotlight of, yeah. uh, of, of all of us so we can actually recognize that this is happening. Mm-hmm. Do you remember a few years ago when the Tanana Village 4-H Club, you know, started talking, all the children and the teenagers in that club started talking publicly about about sexual abuse? I don't think so, no. Yeah, it was amazing. Okay. At AFN, they just got up and they're like, look, this is happening. This is happening to me. This is happening to my cousin. We can't stop protecting you adults. Like, you, ha- it's your job to protect us. We can't stop being silent to protect you. Like, this is what's happening to us and you have to keep us safe. Was there any, like, lead up to that? Or was, or was, what's the aftermath of that? Yeah, I mean, the lead up is that there's a passionate youth advocate, right? Like Tarana Burke, who started the Me Too movement um, down in the lower 48. There's a passionate youth advocate in Tannenau named Cynthia Erickson, who's like, yeah, you got to talk, you got to speak your truth, right? It's, it's our job as adults to keep you safe. It's not your job to be silent about the bad things that are happening to you, mm-hmm. right? And, and in terms of what's happened, uh, that's a good question. I mean, they continue to do good youth work there, Um I think it's it helps spur more conversations about how to tackle. It's a complex social problem, child sexual abuse, all forms of abuse, all forms of child trauma, right? Because it's intergenerational because families are struggling, but it's gotten people to, to think more about it. And there is, um, I think AFN now puts on with First Alaskans Institute and some other partners, um, a Protect Our Children Day or an Honor Our Children Day. April also is child abuse prevention um, month. And so the Alaska Children's Trust is putting on a rally April 5th. Um, South Central Foundation has an event on April 1st. There's the AFN event. So a lot of people are, are really taking um, taking this on and making sure that everyone knows about child abuse, that we have to talk about it to end the silence. Um, and there's a lot of other good things happening around the state. What kinds of adverse childhood experiences do we see most in Alaska? Well, if you we ask we asked Alaskans for three years, and we asked Alaskan adults for three years about the ACEs in a in a telephone survey called the Behavioral Risk Factor Surveillance Survey. Um, and what we found from that survey is that Alaskans 
a larger percentage of Alaskans have a high ACE score, uh, categorized as four or more ACEs, than the national average. So we have a lot of ACEs in Alaska. Um, I don't have all that data in front of me, unfortunately, to say which ACE is the most common. But in terms of OCS reports, so reports to Office of Children's Services, neglect is the most common. Do we know why that is? I mean, it's complicated, um, sure. but but there is an interplay between poverty and neglect, right? So it's not not all neglect is just parents choosing to be neglectful, right? If if parents weren't struggling as much to find work and to keep work and to have work that pays a livable wage. Um, and to get access to food and to get access to services and housing and so on, then we'd have less neglect. So it is really important that we think about the socioeconomic stressors on families and the ways we support them, that it's not only this mental health, this intergenerational transmission of trauma, that it's also like how do we support families to have jobs that pay enough to pay for housing. We also know that uh, not having affordable, available housing keeps people, most often women, in abusive relationships because they have nowhere else to go. Um, so thinking about housing, you know, is also part of it. But parents who are suffering from mental, untreated mental health issues like a, like depression and anxiety and addictions, um, right, when they aren't able to get the help they need, that can leave their kids in, in neglect. Is it safe to say that a, a high ACE score can lead to mental health issues mm -hmm. and um, understanding and dealing with that in a healthy way needs to get better as far as understanding of mental health. Yeah. Um, so the eight original ACE study and the Alaska data shows us that there's a really strong relationship between ACEs and depression or ACEs and anxiety or ACEs and other mental health problems, that it increases the risk. Um, and that's particularly true when you aren't getting the help you need in childhood and in adolescence and early in adulthood, right? Um, so there are a lot of things we can do better. We could have better integration of mental health into schools where kids can actually see counselors. We need better mood disorder screening, so depression and anxiety screening during pregnancy and after pre and after birth, and then treatment for that. So it's, it's not routinely done, unfortunately, but it is effective when it is done. So there have been a few trials showing, you know, if you help pregnant women, if you ask them about, you know, validated screening tools to ask about depression, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder and, and offer effective you know, caring, compassionate treatment um, that helps not only them, but their children long term. So there's a lot of ways we could be doing this. And then if we're screening all infants and children for development, like making sure they're meeting their developmental milestones, and if they're not getting them and their families the support they need through programs like Help Me Grow, which is now a statewide program for supporting developmental screening and you know, wraparound services for families. If we're doing those things, we're going to catch a lot of this earlier on and help people. And also, if we start covering uh, parents' mental health treatment under the kids' Medicaid, under Denali Kid Care, that kind of thing are, are little fixes we could do to help increase um, mental health supports and, and decrease this you know, intergenerational trauma. You know, I, I think... When, at least I'm thinking about ACEs uh, before this conversation especially, I was thinking of like really critical trauma, traumatic things happening like sexual abuse, things like that. But 
I'd like to talk a little bit about something a parent may do that is obviously way lower on, on mm. the scale than something as terrible as that. Um, maybe something like you're you're really passive aggressive to your child, and, mm. and how that can manifest in in something else, something that that may not seem like that big of a deal. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up because you know the ACE study is really helpful because it provides this this epidemiology, this you know data, but it's not it's not just those ten things, right? It's all sorts of things um, that can affect kids' development and their psychology. And we want what we want is for parents to understand child development and be self-aware enough to be able to get their the help they need to be healthy so that they're not being, for example, like you shared, passive aggressive to their kid or manipulative or trying to have power and control over their child, right? We all need to be well ourselves so that we can be well for our children and raise them healthy. And those things, yeah, can affect kids. So that's why I think the conversation we've been having about taking away the stigma of being able to get help. Like we all need to get help so that we can be the best parents to our kids or uncles or aunts or grandparents or neighbors to the children in our lives. Yeah. 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 I, I think so too. I think um, certain parents aren't meant to be parents. And this is something that me and my wife believe if we're looking at people as like, say a cake, right? We're not done baking yet. We're not, we don't have all of the available information. We're not smart enough to teach these children that, that we will eventually have to be successful, contributing members of society. And so until we get there, we will not have kids because otherwise it is children teaching children how to be adults when the parent who is not yet an adult yet is still a child trying to teach a child how to be an adult. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really glad that you have, you know, the education and the access to be able to make that choice about family planning for your family. I mean, and I think that's really important that everyone have the information to understand how to plan a family, right? How to make that choice. So they need to understand how reproduction works. They need to understand how to protect against pregnancy um, in safe and effective ways. And they need to have access to those those family planning methods. Um, And that's uh, that's not something that's universally available, um, but is really important for helping people make the choice to have children when they're ready to have children. Yeah. And I, one of the things I used to work on a lot was um, looking at abusive relationships. And one of the dynamics that can happen in abusive relationships is reproductive coercion, which is when, you know, one person wants to have the kid and the other one doesn't. And typically it's used, you know, men, uh, controlling a woman's pregnancy, you know, without her consent. So like poking holes in condoms or taking them off or uh, throwing away her birth control pills or not letting her go get her depo shot in order to use pregnancy as a way to control her body and her, you know, choices. And this is a thing? Yes. Wow. So in national studies in family planning clinics, like 17 to 18 percent of the patients had experienced this. Yeah. And in study in um, they did a study with people calling domestic violence hotlines and 25% of them had experienced reproductive coercion of the women calling those hotlines. 25%. Mm-hmm. So it can be a common abuse tactic, right? A way of controlling a woman through reproduction. So that's really important too to bring up. Like it's People need to be able to control when they have children and make those choices for themselves, including ways of keeping themselves safe if they are in an abusive relationship. Yeah, I had uh, I had no idea. What would possess 
a, a man to do that? Would it be something that we've been talking about? Would it be he has a high ACES score or would it be would it be a learn something that he learned from Ooh. his father or? You know, that's hard. I mean, it's a power and control tactic. And why people choose to use power and control tactics to control other people is complicated, right? And I, I, I both want to be effective in preventing it. And therefore, I want to understand the, the way that childhood trauma might lead someone to use power and control tactics. I also don't want to make any excuses for someone using power and control tactics. To, you know, it is violent. It is harmful. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that we need to change a lot in society about how we... How it's not just that kids experience trauma, it's that they experience trauma and then they receive a lot of really bad messages about how to be a man in the world, right? Um, and that's why those those programs we talked about earlier that are effective at helping prevent boys from becoming violent address that. Like the way that that you're expected to be a boy or, be, or act like a man is about having power and control over people. And we need to change that. We need to change that to have a sense that you know, we should have equal relationships with people that shared decision-making is good, that you don't have to control women in order to be, um, you know, a powerful man, a sexy man, et cetera. And how are the the scales weighted? Is it is it uh, men kind of tipping the scale or is it even or... For, for which? For as far as... Uh, as far as abuse goes, you know, is it is it the men oh, are the perpetrators? Men co- yeah, men commit the majority of abuse, not not solely, right? So men can be victims of abuse, both abuse perpetrated by men and by women. Um, and all domestic violence, sexual violence agencies, you know, offer services to men, to male victims, or victims of any gender identity. So people who are non-binary or who are transgender, and that's really important, right? But they're the ways that we socialize boys, the ways that we teach boys that they're supposed to be men does contribute to men committing most of the violence, right? And they commit most of the mass shootings and so on. And I do not think this is because boys are inherently more violent at all. Um, I think it's because of how we socialize them. And one of those things is, you know, like we're talking about being able to talk about your emotions. We teach girls that it's okay to talk about your emotions and we don't teach boys the same thing. And we have to, we have to let little boys cry. We have to let them talk about their feelings and not tell them that, you know, not call them names for doing it. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a uh, societal stigma as well as maybe a media stigma. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, th- this is what I want to study someday if I, if I undertake more research, because I don't think it's, it's super well understood, this intersection between childhood trauma and masculinity and privilege and kind of how it, how it contributes. I think there's a lot we still don't know, or I don't know anyway. Um, but clearly, the ways that ACEs manifest are not the same by women and by men, because men are committing most of those crimes um, of violent crimes. And so something's happening in terms of gender socialization that's that's making that come out in different ways. I agree with you when, when you said that education is very important, teachers are very important. So when we're looking at all of this information and we are, you know, you're talking about the intersection between, you know, masculinity and all, how do we get the findings of that information out to the public in a meaningful way? That's a good question. I mean, I do think that... Um, the Alaska Network on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault and the Council on Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault are doing a good job of addressing those things um, with programs like Coaching Boys into Men, Compass, uh, Talk Now, Talk Often, Fourth R. Like they're, they're in the school systems mainly and in extracurricular activities. They've also done some public messaging um, about kind of gender because 
what we do know is that, yeah, when people have really strict ideas about gender, that increases violence. Um, so if we have more kind of let people be people sort of ideas about gender, there tends to be less violence. I'm not sure I totally answered your question, though. I, I think what I'm getting from that is, is uh, you know, have violence begets violence. Uh, you know, anger begets anger. You have trauma begets trauma. So we have to be smarter about it. We have to understand why things are the way they are. Yeah, and we have to let people talk about it and heal. You know, and anger isn't necessarily unhealthy, right? It's okay for kids to feel anger. What we need to teach them is is how they can manage that so it doesn't have to take them over, you know, how they can breathe, how they can go to the peace place, and how they can hug the doll or blow bubbles or whatever it is to to have some control over their own anger so it doesn't have to control them. Kind of the whole point of this podcast is to shed light on all the separate variables that amount to criminality in Anchorage. And I think this one is specifically important because it deals with our most vulnerable population, our kids. And it starts at the root of the problem. So what can we do as a community to make it so less children have to go through all this? Mm, good question. I think there's a lot we can do. And I'm, I'm glad you asked because so often when we talk about solutions to crime in the community, we're talking about adults who are committing crime or youth who are committing crime and not going upstream to... Being you know, proactive. Yeah, to, to who these adults were when they were children or when they were in utero, right? How can we prevent this from the very beginning? So some things that we know help are having high-quality prenatal care, um, 30-some percent of women are not getting adequate prenatal care in Alaska. So making sure that people have coverage to be able to get prenatal care, to be able to get high-quality birth care and postpartum care, to get screening for depression and anxiety and substance abuse and get the support they need um, early in life. Having home visitation. So there's some home visitation programs, um, Toxivic at South Central, and there's a nurse-family partnership from Providence. But it still can only serve a pretty small percentage of the population. If we had expanded you know, capacity for home visitation um, during pregnancy in the first five years of a child's life, that would help a lot. CITC also has a, a good home visitation program that's a little more expansive. Um, but that's an evidence-based best practice, which just means that it's, research has shown it to work to really help child outcomes. Other things that help are, um, you know, if we had affordable, high-quality child care. So um, we know that about, 50, about half of Alaskan parents or over half of Alaskan parents can't have trouble finding child care. Um, it's really hard to afford. We're one of the least affordable states for child care. Um, I know really? I'm, I'm paying 35% of my income in, uh, in child care for my two kids. Wow, okay. Right? It is so hard to afford. And that's really important for ch healthy child development and for parents' ability to work and earn an income so and not what, be stressed. What do parents do in lieu of affordable child care? Do they just leave it with a grandparent? It, I'm sure, uh, a child. <laughs> Do they leave their child with a grandparent? If they're or? lucky enough to have a grandparent who can watch the kid, um, but a lot of people can't. So they might use unlicensed child care or low quality licensed child care, um, or they might not work, right? A lot of people have to drop out of the labor force because they can't earn enough to pay for child care. So, I mean, it's a major problem. Yeah, we need more affordable, high-quality childcare subsidies for parents to be able to afford it. Programs like Head Start are super, super high-quality. There just aren't 
a ton of spots in the um, proposed budget from the governor plans, propose this to zero out Head Start and Parents as Teachers, which is a home visitation program and a bunch of other early childhood programs. So we definitely need to make sure that um, that budget doesn't pass, that we you know keep the funding in for the childhood program, early childhood programs that we have now and increase it. Really, we should have more preschool programs, more pre-K programs as part of public schools so that you can send your kids to public you know, school. It is, you know, that that's the most sensitive period of brain development is zero to five. So why do parents have to pay so much for it? Um, One thing that I think, in my opinion, kind of encapsulates all of this is that we need to be, we need to think of the long term rather than the short term. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to, we need to pay more attention to Head Start programs. We need to pay attention to you know, children in utero. We need to pay more attention to kids in those extremely important maturation periods because Mm -hmm. what happens during those, they will carry with them for the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah. And we need supports for parents, you know. We need uh, substance abuse treatment. We need mental health treatment. We need that to be more broadly available and more affordable. So right now there are a bunch of barriers to if you for example if you have medicaid to getting children's mental health services because of the you know provider reimbursement right so there's policy level fixes but then there's also community level fixes we need to watch out for each other you know as parents we need to watch out for each other's kids when you see a parent struggling in the grocery store like show empathy like help their kid out help them out you know see see in what way you can help instead of just you know, one of the worst things is when you're a parent and your kid is crying and people glare at you like you're doing something. Like on a plane? Yeah, like how dare you have a child that makes noise, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. That's the worst thing we can do to parents because then they get stressed and then they're more likely to snap at their kid, right? We need to offer empathy to their child, offer empathy to them. We're a community. We, you know, the well-being of someone else's child is going to affect me, you know, and we need to look out for each other. Lost Anchorage is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music is by Michelle McLaughlin. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Thank you to Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, David North, Crystal Liska, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Shane Robinson, and Sharon Liska for supporting this podcast at the company man level.